a couple years ago at the College World Series 2013. There were, uh, anybody watch the College World Series? My family would go to it sometimes. We grew up just a couple hours from there. And uh, these two girls uh, in the middle of the game decided that they wanted to take a selfie. You know what a selfie is? Selfie is when you take your camera, really you take your phone, right? And you, uh, you pick it up and you turn the camera on reverse and you take a picture of yourself like this, right? Only it's most effective evidently from what I can tell online when you do a duck face, when you look that and then you take the picture. Well, these two girls did that, but, but they're at the College World Series and they decided that the thing that was going on in the stadium all around them really wasn't the most important thing. The most important thing was them to get their selfie. And selfies have like just taken the rage. Like there's been, uh, there was a whole exhibit in London a couple years ago of selfies, like an art exhibit of people's selfie pictures. Well, these two girls, here's what they do. They jump out onto the field, run out into the field in the middle of this baseball game and take their selfie. And you can guess probably what happens next, right? Tackled by security, drug off, they're done. That's the end of the day for them. But, but what they decided was that the game that was being played, everything that's going on on the field in front of them, was less important. The thing that everybody had come to see, the thing that everybody had come to participate in, that, that their own agenda was more important than the game. That their selfie took precedence over everyone else's price they paid for a ticket, all the hard work the college students had done to get to the College World Series. They were really selfish, weren't they? Well, this morning, what we're going to see is when Paul writes to the Philippians, we're in this series through the book of Philippians. He's writing to a church in a city called Philippi that he calls for the church to make sure they don't forget the game that's being played on the field, that they keep their eyes on what's going on, that they don't run out, that they're just a small part of the game. It's not people aren't gathered there for them to watch them take their selfie. And that's where we're headed this morning. Let me pray. And then we'll dive into the text and we'll go from there. Father, thanks for Jesus. Thanks for your grace to us through him. And uh, Father, thanks most that, uh, that he's the one in charge. He's the one in control. And that uh, we're invited to be part of his story, of his mission, of the game that he's playing on the field. Uh, Holy Spirit, I pray this morning you speak to me and through me as we look at your word. I pray uh, you, would, you would use my words to, to draw us and compel us to unity as a church focused on Jesus, that it would bring great joy to our hearts. I pray also against the enemy who uh, loves to steal our joy, who loves to uh, cause disunity and discord and division in the church. And he delights in that when, when he can ruin what, what you've put in place. Instead, help us to keep our eyes focused on Jesus. As we've talked about, uh, to rejoice, to, to dwell on God's grace and let it define us and revel in it. And as we do that, it, it turns our hearts and our minds to Jesus. Do that in us, Father, I pray. Even, even this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in the, the book of Philippians, as I mentioned, and we're studying this and we're looking at it. In, in terms of, of Paul's letter to the church there, but, but there's this overarching theme of joy and of rejoicing that comes up over and over and over. Every week we're going to see joy again this morning. And, and we said that to, to rejoice is actually my choice. That, that I'm not just joyful or, or happy because of circumstances, but that I choose joy, that I choose to rejoice. 
And we've defined it as I choose to dwell on God's grace. I choose to let it define me, to find my identity in Christ and in his grace, to, to revel in it, to love it. And because it supersedes any and every other thing. And what we're going to see this morning is that as we do that, it brings unity to the church. Let's read Philippians chapter 2. We'll start in verse 1. Paul starts off and he says, So, so, or your translation might say, therefore. And whenever you see therefore in the text, you ask yourself, what's it there for? And he's, he's pointing backwards to what he had just said, where in, in verses 27, 28, he said, whether I come and see you or I'm absent. And he goes on, he says, live lives worthy of the gospel. He says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy, Paul says, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you, Paul writes, look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by being, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every, every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. Well, let's start unpacking that. Let's just start back in verse 1. Paul says, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, Paul's listing, he lists out four conditional statements. And, and they're conditional because they say if, but really, it could be translated and probably should be translated, not if, but or understood at least in the sense of sense. Not if, but since. See, here's what Paul's doing here. He, he's doing a thing that my dad used to do with me and my brothers when we were little, when we would fight. He, he would come to us and he'd go, Josh, do you love your brother? Do you love him? I go, oh, yeah, yeah I, I guess I love him. Well, he, he'd go on, you know, do, do you want your brother to love you? Well, yeah, I want, him, I want him to love me and to like me. I, do you want your brother to be happy? He's reminding me of things that are true to make his point. And here's where he's going. Do you want him to be happy? Yeah, I want him to be happy. Do you, do you want him to share his toys with you? Yeah, I do. And then he nails it, right? He goes, well, then be nice to him and share your toys with him. He reminds me of what's true to make his point of what I should do. That's what Paul's doing here. He's saying, so if there's any encouragement, and really you might, might understand that is since there's encouragement in Christ, because there is all kinds of encouragement in Jesus Christ. We saw that last week that clearly it's an encouragement for each of us when we live out our identity, right? When, when we live as the body of Christ, when we're focused on the same thing, there's encouragement there for each of us to live the life we want to. And, and he refers to Christians as those who are in Christ, that's something to understand. All of these things talk about being in 
Christ. You, do you know Paul never refers to believers as Christians? He refers to them as believers and he says that they are in Christ. That's the description. Kind of like in our culture, you would say, uh, you're in college. You're in the Marines. You're in whatever, right? And you, you phone the bike, you're in Christ. That's your identity. That's who you are. That's positionally where you are. As we sang earlier, it's your station that he has raised me up so high above my station, kind of like a, a Marine officer or a Navy officer. They, they have a certain station. Maybe their lookout station is on the bow or wherever it might be. And the station of a higher officer is much higher. And Jesus has raised us to a higher station in Christ. That's our station. That's our position. And he says, in that position, since there's encouragement there, it, it, these are just kind of duh statements. I mean, if you, you asked him his questions, is there any encouragement in Christ? Honestly, the right Sunday school answer, I think, would be, duh. Yeah, there is. Any comfort from love, Paul says. I mean, you receive comfort when people love and show love to you? Yeah, it's comforting, isn't it? Duh. Any participation in the spirit. This could be translated, your translation might even say fellowship in the spirit. It's the idea of friendship, of unity, relationship with the Holy Spirit. Is, is there participation in the spirit for those who have trusted Jesus? What's the answer? Uh, yeah, help me out. Duh. Anybody, what's the answer? Duh. All right. How about, is there affection and sympathy? Duh. Duh. Of course there is, Josh. Come on. What do you think? Now, what's curious here is this affection and sympathy. If you have a King James translation, here's what it says in the King James. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you in the bowels. That's actually verse 1, verse 8. But he translates, instead of affection and sympathy, he says, is there any bowels and mercy? What? what? Huh? I don't understand the King James sometimes because it's written a few hundred years for English, a few hundred years before today. But, but it helps us when we look at that because it's not just talking about affection, but it's talking about deep affection. Deep inside this, this yearning in my heart. When you hear of somebody struggling in the church, does your heart ache for them? When you see somebody rejoice, does your heart leap for them? That's, that's deep affection and sympathy in Christ. And Paul's doing just like my dad did. He'd, he'd be like, hey, is there any encouragement in Christ? Oh, yeah, I guess. Is, is there any comfort in love? Yeah, yeah, there is. Is there, uh, is there any fellowship in the spirit, Paul asks? Yeah, 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 there is. How about affection and sympathy, deep affection and sympathy? Is there that in the church, in Christ? Yeah. He goes, well, if that's the case, then complete my joy. If that's the case, complete my joy. And here's how. By being like-minded. If all those things are true, be like-minded. Imagine this letter is being read to the church, kind of like I read it earlier to the, to the whole group. Not everybody had their own copy. Somebody got up in the church and they just read it to everyone. And they're going through and they're listening. And they're hearing these things and they're maybe answering those things even to themselves. Is there, is there encouragement? Yeah. Is there love? Yeah. Is there... Well, then Paul says, then complete my joy by being like-minded. Be like-minded. Fill it up. Complete it. You know, I said earlier in the series that Paul didn't write to the Philippian church to really address any major 
doctrinal error or, or major sin or, or a huge thing going on in the church like he does so many of his letters. But basically it was a letter of encouragement to them for them to seek joy. And what we're going to see this morning is to seek unity. But what I do think when you look at this and when you look later in the book, when Paul calls out two women and tells them, hey, quit arguing with one another, forgive one another in front of everybody. How would you like that if, I just, if some, you're arguing with somebody and I just decided to tell everybody what was going on? Yikes. That's what Paul does. But, but there seems to be that he's identifying there's some cracks in the armor. This is a strong church, but there, there's something happening where he's starting to sense this pull away from unity and toward division and toward disunity. And he's like, hey, hey, patch that up now before you have a huge crack. Patch it up now. Complete my joy. Be like-minded. Protect your unity as a church. Unity is an ongoing work to maintain, isn't it? We talked about unity a little bit last week, that it's not uniformity. Unity isn't uniformity. Unity isn't where... Uniformity is this, when everybody just falls in line and we do it this way, and this is how we do it. Because that's what I said. And I don't like anything that's not uniform to what I like. That's uniformity. That's not unity. Unity is we're all focused on the same thing, moving the same direction. But some maybe are going like this and some are going straight and some are skipping and some are running. But we're going the same direction. We're focused on the same goal. But unity is hard to maintain because what happens is we're all selfish by nature. And we all have this bent in us, not towards unity, but towards uniformity and conformity towards what I want and towards what I desire. Anybody sense that? I mean, why else would my dad have to have had that talk with me as a little boy? Hey, share your toys. Be nice to your brother. Well, it's because to me, unity with my brother and, and peace with my brother was he does everything I want him to do. That sounds like unity to me as a four year old little boy. But, but it's not. It's loving him. It's being selfless. And, and as a church, we all have this tendency. We're all human. We, we default towards selfishness. And we don't want unity. We want uniformity, and specifically to the way that we would have it. But it's curious. Paul wants there to be unity in the church. And, and the way he says it is that it would uh, complete his joy. There seems to be a great connection between joy in each of us as individuals and unity among us as a church, as Paul writes. Have you ever experienced that? When have you found the most joy and excitement being part of a church? Whether it's this church or maybe another church you were part of in the past, or maybe you're visiting today and that you're a part of now. When did you sense the most joy, the most excitement? It's usually when it seems like everybody's pulling the same direction. And everybody's maybe doing it a little bit different way, but they're all focused on Jesus. And they're all focused on accomplishing this thing for Jesus. They're taking ground. They're standing firm. They're advancing the gospel. Now, the flip side of that, when have you experienced the least joy in a church? When that group's doing that thing and that guy's doing that thing and this lady's arguing about this and they're going that direction and everybody's scattered and nobody's happy. Everybody just wants their own thing and nobody's moving towards Jesus. 
And Paul's starting to see some of these fissures here in the church in Philippi. And he's saying, hey, protect your unity. Complete my joy. Be of one mind. Be like-minded. Paul wants unity because it brings him joy. But sadly, a lot of people's joy is lacking. Would you agree? Let's just use the, the old... If, you're, if you've been part of the church for very long at all, you've seen this definition of joy. It's an acronym. And there's three pieces to it, right? Jesus, others, yourself. But most people's joy is lacking because all they really have is the yourself. They don't have joy, they have yaj. They spell it backwards. They start with themselves. Why? Because we're all bent that way. We all are. We all start with our own desires, with our own needs, with our own wants. And it's curious, Paul doesn't, as we get into this, Paul doesn't say that that's a wrong thing or that that's a bad thing to care for your own needs or to care for your own desires. But he says that's the back burner. But we get it flipped around. And he knows we get it flipped around, so he doesn't spend any time really giving us any instruction on how to put yourself first. He spends no time talking about that because he's like, yeah, they got that down. They got it. So let's just go to the next thing. And he works it backwards. And so what we're going to see is then he's, he doesn't talk about yourself because we all got it. But then he talks about how do you put others first? And then ultimately what we're going to see is how do you put Jesus first? And what he's saying is that's how you be like-minded. That brings unity to the church. So let's look at it. Number one, if he's working that definition backwards, there's no unity in the church when there's selfishness. There is no unity in the church when there's selfishness. Here's what he writes in verses three and four. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. In other words, don't, don't be selfish. Don't be conceited, but be humble. We've defined humility for you before as knowing your place. It's knowing that I'm, I'm honored above the lower creation, but I'm humbled. I'm, I'm lower than God, and I have this place of being humbly honored by God. And in that, knowing my identity, I'm to reflect Jesus and care for other people. And that's what he's saying. Be, be humble. Don't, don't do things out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Man, there's nothing that can ruin a church more than selfish ambition or conceitedness. That can ruin a small group more than selfish ambition. That can ruin a youth ministry more than selfish ambition. That can ruin anything more than that. When one person or one group just gets on their horse and they want everything exactly the way they want it, everyone else is like... Right on, cowboy. It's all yours. Take it away. And, and it just causes division. We've ex some, some of us, you've experienced that in the church. And no church is immune from it. Even the church in Philippi. That's why Paul's saying, hey, complete my joy. Be like-minded. Don't let that happen. When you see it start to happen, repent, turn back, seek unity. And, and while that can cause more disunity and division in the church than anything, the thing that can cause great unity is humility. Humility brings great unity. When I choose to humble myself and go, you know what? God's putting certain 
leaders in charge and I should be humble and honor them and and love them and, and follow them so long as they're following Jesus. And God's put me in a group of people that I'm to love and honor and care for, putting, well, here's how he says it in verse four. He goes on. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, assuming we all do that, but also to the interests of others. He's put me in this group of people that I should care for their well-being. I should care for, for their joy. See, what's curious is Paul tells them to complete my joy. There's a sense where we choose joy, but there's also a sense where our humility and our looking out for other people brings joy to others. And in a sense, we can choose joy for other people. Now, this isn't being a people pleaser. This isn't just doing whatever it takes to make this person happy. This is caring for them first, above maybe my own interests. Paul writes about this all over the place. He says in Romans 12, verse 3, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. That's humility. Each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. He says later, Romans 12, verse 10, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. First Peter, Peter writes the same thing in First Peter 5, 5 and 6. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he might exalt you. He says earlier in chapter 3, verse 8, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Here, Paul says, it looked not to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And actually, I just said that wrong. He doesn't say, look not to your own interests. He says, look not only to your own interests. It's okay to look to your own interests. It's it's okay to have interests, to have passions, to have things you're excited about and that you care about and that you want to see accomplished in the church and in your family. But don't be so focused on that that you got the blinders on that you, you, you harm other people. Look to their interests, even above your own. And sadly, this this verse would be a great verse for any church going through major conflict, wouldn't it? Because sadly, the, the vast majority of disunity in a church, fights, splits, they take place over, they, they start with selfish, petty arguments. I, I wrote a few down. And by the way, as I say this, It's by God's grace that I think over the last handful of years, we've had more unity as a church than maybe at any time in our history, other than when we first got started and we're moving forward. It's been phenomenal to watch the last three, four, five years. And so this is a good reminder to us, hey, if those cracks are starting to form, let's patch them up and be like-minded. Here's some of the things that maybe would cause disunity at selfish interests, but not caring for the interests of others. I I don't like that music. I don't like that song. I don't like that beat. I don't like that chord on the end of the song. I don't like it. No, sir. It sounds like a Dr. Seuss book. I don't, I do not like it, Sam. I am. I don't like the way they dress. Too casual, too stuffy. What is it? I don't like it. I don't like the color of the wall. 
too white. I, I, don't, I don't like it. I, I, I don't, what is it? Fill in the blank. I, I don't like this. I don't like that. I, I don't like them. I, ugh, Shut it! I don't care! Don't you feel like saying that sometimes when you hear all the complaints? By God's grace, we haven't had many, which is a great thing, but we need to protect that. And and what we need to say to those who, who maybe complain is that, listen, we love you. We care for you. We know you care about that, but you know what? I have some, I have some things that I would prefer that aren't the way I do it. I have some things the way I would prefer that the music was or the color of the church was or the design of this was. But you know what's more important to me than that, than that thing that's my preference? It's Jesus is on the cross. Jesus is, is in the lead. Jesus is the senior pastor. He's the one we preach. He's the one we run to. He, he's, he's the center of the church. Amen? When you meet disunity, put their interests above your own, sympathize with them, and then lovingly, and sometimes love is in their face, turn their heart back to Jesus. If we're not focused on Jesus, we're sunk. And in fact, that brings us to point number two. There is no unity in the church apart from Jesus. He's working that definition of joy backwards. There's no unity in selfishness and there's no unity apart from Jesus. Here's how Paul says it in verse five. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Which is yours in Christ Jesus. What's going to happen now is for the rest of this passage through verse 11 is Paul's going to say, and then actually what we're going to see later next week and the week after, he's going to give Jesus as an example, and then he's going to give Timothy as an example, and then he's going to give Epaphroditus as an example of, of how to live our lives so that we seek unity and so that we seek Jesus first. And he says, have this mind. And he goes, by the way, it's already yours in Christ Jesus. If, if you trusted Jesus, you have this mind. You've been made new. You have this identity. Now live it out. Start living like it, man. Live worthy of the gospel. Live out who you are. And he says, have this mind. Be like Jesus. You know, there's no unity apart from the church or in the church apart from Jesus Christ. I had the opportunity, I was talking to somebody this week, actually. Uh, they attend another church and they were talking about some of the struggles they're having right now. And, uh, and, and it mirrors struggles that every church has. And it, and it was ultimately a struggle of unity. And I, I listened and I, I cared and I said, you know, here's the deal. Unless Jesus is at the center, that's never going to fix itself. And the truth is that if Jesus isn't the center of your heart, if Jesus isn't the center of, I didn't say this emphatically to him, but if if Jesus isn't the center of your heart, you're the problem. You're the one causing disunity. There's no unity in the church apart from Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And now he starts to talk through the example of who Jesus is. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What did Paul just tell the church? He said, don't, 
don't do any things with selfish ambition or with conceit. Don't, don't just look out for your own interests, but for the interests of others. He tells us a huge theological truth here in the fact that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. He's part of the Trinity. He's fully divine. He was in the form of God, and he he still is. That's not saying that he departed from being in the form of God, but what he did is you can read about it in the first chapter of John. He puts on flesh. He he puts on flesh, and he, he comes to dwell among us, or you could even translate it, he comes to tabernacle among us in this tent. He puts on flesh. He becomes a man. Unlike unlike any other religion that would teach that, no, a man became God, or if you do enough things, you'll become God. Christianity is God became man. He put on flesh. He humbled himself. And and though he was God, though he was fully 100% God, he didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. You might think of it like that. Thing to be grasped, hold on to, and never let go of, and then... And really, you might uh, translate that as exploited, a thing to be exploited. How does that translate to us? Well, even though we're in Christ, even though we're part of the church and we have freedom, we have, there's a certain sense where we shouldn't just grasp and hold on and exploit our power or our preference or whatever else at the discord of others. Right? It's not a thing to be grasped. He didn't, he didn't cling to it. A good way to describe it is he didn't pull out his God card. You know, he had this card that said, I'm God. Everybody see it? That's me. And put it back in his pocket when he just wanted to accomplish something. He didn't exploit his deity. In fact, I think the, the right teaching on this doctrinally would be the idea that Jesus, and by the way, he never, he never let go of being God but he veiled his deity. He was always still fully God, but he never exploited it. He never exploited it. He never played the God card. He was humble. In fact, Paul goes on, he says, but verse seven, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Read about God in the Old Testament. And then put yourself in the, in the church of Philippi. These people, their only Bible was the Old Testament. And they're thinking of who God is. Strong, powerful, part of the Red Sea, rescued his people, accomplished all these things. And now he's saying, Jesus, that's Jesus? Jesus is the same as that? That's, he's God? He's glorious. And yet he, he emptied himself. Now that doesn't mean he quit being God. I think maybe a good way to say it is he veiled his deity. And he never tapped into it. And instead, he took on the form of a servant. He, he humbled himself and was born in the likeness of men. He became a man so that he, he can sympathize with us in our weakness, the writer of Hebrews says. So that he can be a perfect sacrifice for us on the cross. So that every challenge I go through, I know Jesus has gone through. That he knows what it's like. And that he rescues me and saves me. From my sin. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
See, Paul repeats the fact that he was in human form just to make a point, kind of like you're telling a story and you're like, I was, I was looking out the window and while I was looking out the window, this happened. I mean, you wouldn't have to repeat yourself there, but Paul does to kind of slow it down and remind us he, he became a man and he humbled himself even to the point of death, death on a cross. That would have been vile to these people. The humiliation and the vileness of being crucified. There was a certain sense in many circles, the word crucifixion wasn't even used. Because it was such a horrible and awful, shameful thing. And I won't go into the horrors of that this morning, but, but that's the point, the extent to which Jesus humbles himself. totally the opposite of the way we often function, isn't it? Instead of humbling myself and giving way to the interests and cares and concerns of others in the church, I, I, I kind of want to get up a little step higher and tell them what I think. And yet, that's not what Jesus did. Paul says, no, be like Jesus. Humble yourself. Look not just to your own interests, but the interests of others. Be of one mind. Be like-minded. Be like Jesus. You get to verse 9 and you see the results of someone in Jesus who humbled himself. Therefore, because of that, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name. You know the way up in God's kingdom is down to become a servant. It's to care for others. It's to love other people. It's to put their interests above my own. And therefore, because of that, God highly exalted him, God the Father did, and bestowed on him, on Jesus, the name that's above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's a huge truth in and of itself that could demand its own sermon. But Jesus Christ is God. He's been highly exalted by the Father. And at his name, every knee in heaven, on the earth, below the earth, everywhere will bow to him. That includes every knee in this room. There will come a day If you haven't already, you will bow to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you have the opportunity to bow to him now in joyful submission, putting him first and then others, then myself, or in terror and shame on the last day when you realize who he really is. The truth of the matter is that every person who's ever lived will bow their knee before Jesus Christ. Adolf Hitler will bow his knee and confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Osama bin Laden will bow his knee, likely in terror and shame, confessing Jesus Christ is Lord. You have a choice. You can turn to him joyfully now and bow your knee and repent. Or you can do so in terror later. I would commend doing it now rising and coming to Jesus will embrace you in his arms as we sing.
And in closing, when I choose to rejoice, when I choose to let God's grace define my life, when I, when I choose, another way to say this, when I choose Jesus first, and then others, and then my interests, I protect and I contribute. You got to type on your, your notes, I know. You contribute to the unity of the church. When you seek Jesus first, you contribute to the unity of your church. Seek Jesus first. I say it all the time. I, I didn't really ask anybody, but when I, when I took the role of lead pastor, I changed my title from senior pastor to lead pastor. Why? Because Jesus is the chief shepherd. Jesus is senior pastor of our church. It's his church. He's first. His agenda, his priorities, then us. Amen? Let me pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he is in charge, that this is his church. Let me never forget that. Never. Let each of us never forget that, that, that it's, it's his agenda, it's his purposes, it's his commission to us to make disciples that, that, that must drive what we do, to love one another that must drive what we do, that his word must be at the center of who we are and of where we stand. And I believe that as we do that, as, as we seek Jesus first, that, that like you exalted him, so you'll be pleased in us, Father. I pray for those who have never bowed their knee. I, I pray that even today, Holy Spirit, you might be working in their heart in such a way to where they, they know the truth of the gospel. They know Jesus is God. They know he's in control. They know, they know he's full of power and they know they need to bend their knee. I pray today they might that they might repent of their sin and simply turn to you in faith and trust you with their life, that you would take their sin, make them clean, make them new so that they wouldn't have to bow their knee in terror at a later date. Father, I pray you protect our church, protect us from the enemy and his desire to steal our joy and to steal our unity. As we move into the summer and and so many have different things going on and and going different directions and we kind of scatter a little bit as a church. I pray uh, that you'd protect our unity as we come back together towards the fall and really take off in mission. That, That Jesus, you would be at the center of all our decisions. Jesus, that you would be lifted up and exalted in all that we do, all that we say, all that we sing. We love you. Thanks that you love us. We don't deserve it. I pray all this through Jesus. Amen.